sit down with an agent from day one, have them counsel you, learn about the market. The reality is, is when you come and sit down with me in the office, my job is to protect you and to get you what you need. When you call me off a sign and I've never met you before, my job is to sell that house, whether it fits your needs or not. You really need to sit there and take the advice of the person that's sitting across the table from you. You need to trust them. They do have a fiduciary duty to you. Hi, I'm Jason Scott, and welcome to the latest edition of iloveedmontonrealestate.com. My guests today are Jill Jordan and David Kwashnick of Remax Real Estate. Welcome to the show. Morning, Jason. Morning, Jason. Thanks for having us. My pleasure. So, David and Jill, how long have you been realtors for? I've been a realtor now 15 and a half years. Okay. Myself, pretty much the same, I think about 14 years. Okay. And how did you get into real estate? Long story short... <laughs> Better somebody, than long story some, long. Somebody said, you know, you'd be really good at real estate, so I decided to give it a try. What were you doing in your previous life? Two previous lives. I used to manage restaurants, okay. and I used to work in the RV business as well. Okay. Like on the sales side? Or? Sales and service. Okay. And, well, would either of those careers be directly transferable to real estate? Or? 100% they are. How so? A- absolutely. So take, for example, in the RV business, on the sales side, of course, there's the sales part. But there was also the aspect of the business office, which already prepped me for how mortgages work and how amortizations and payments and all that kind of stuff played into the big picture. So it had a huge impact on how easy the, to transfer over into real estate. Yeah, obviously motorhomes can cost as much as houses in some cases, right? So. Absolutely. Yeah, it taught it taught me the basic principles of like what a five-year loan was and how to amortize and deal with payments, down payments, that kind of stuff. So it was a very easy transition going from a $25,000 trailer to a $250,000, $350,000 house. Yeah. And how about you, David? How did you get into real estate? I got in real estate just from a personal perspective. I started buying investment properties and fixing them up, putting renters in. I eventually got into the flipping game and then thought it'd be a good idea to get my license and and sell my houses on my own, which has turned into a a 14-year career of of real estate, either as a selling agent or a broker owner, pretty much done everything. Are you still doing flips? I am still currently doing flips. Uh, Right now, focusing more on basement suites, taking a house and obviously converting the basement for an extra suite, which will obviously increase the cash flow of a property. Okay. So there's like, even though Edmonton's market right now is relatively flat or trending downwards, there's still opportunity to make money on the flip side of things. You know what there is, if you can be creative with the flips uh, in the last uh, year, I've done a, about three that, you know, were, were profitable. Obviously one was a townhouse that, that was bought really, really well. And, and, you know, made a, a quick turnaround on it. Time will kill you, obviously, when flipping a house, so you can't hold on to them for too long. And then, obviously, the basement suites, you know, obviously, they, they add a lot of value when they're legal and can bring in an extra thousand bucks a month. Okay, so, like, on the town, because those are two different styles of projects that you're talking about. So, I'm thinking, like, the townhouse was probably, you know, put on some lipstick and clean it up and send it back into the market very quickly, right? Yeah, exactly. That one, um, you know, I I found that house with a client. He didn't want to buy it and I kind of kept my eye on it. You know, I did the research in the area. It was a higher end area. So I knew the values could could possibly be a bit higher. You know, it was a bit of a risk for what it was. But in the end, you know, we we did turn it around and, and made it desirable for the neighborhood. How long did it take to turn that one around? That one should have been about a four month flip 
roughly. Mm-hmm. So you know, sometimes you get some delays, but if you can get it turned around, get something in the get something in the winter and have it ready for for the spring market, usually you're you're pretty good. Right, and then obviously with the basement suites, I'm assuming you're starting off with a house with either an unfinished suite, or sorry, an unfinished basement or a partially finished basement, and then you're going through the whole development process with the city and whatnot to get in you know two sources of heat and all that yeah so my my focus on basement suites right now is i actually look in newer neighborhoods so i'll I'll find homes that are probably 10 years old or newer that have unfinished basements obviously you got to make sure that the the back doors and the, and the entrances make sense. So you're not putting in doors, which are a big expense. But if they, if they fit the bill for easy conversion, I love the newer homes because obviously, you know, you're not replacing furnaces, you're not replacing roofs, you know, the kitchens upstairs, everything's going to be pretty good. And people want newer homes based on where they're going to school, you know, or, um, you know, just they see that it's a, a better fit instead of having a 50 or 60 year old home. Right. Okay. So Jill, when, you, when you're um, working with clients, mm-hmm. When you're identifying that house, I mean, who's the client who typically will want to buy one of these homes that would uh, be great for adding in the basement suite? Would it be a home buyer or is it purely an investor? I see two different kinds of clients that are looking at the market for uh, legal suites. You do have your um, lower end buyers that, you know, they economically they can afford the big house, but they're getting smart about using their money now and they're realizing that by investing the money and finishing off a basement suite like David does, that they can net in that extra $900,000 a month and apply it to their mortgage over the first five years. Typically, we find most people only live in their first house for five to seven years, so it's a great way to take advantage of getting that mortgage paid down significantly mm-hmm. during that time. Now, then there's the other side, and that's the investor, and the investor wants to come in and, of course, always buy that house as absolutely cheap as he can get it. He has almost unlimited resources and I don't just mean financially but with contractors and workers and stuff so that he can get in there and flip that over now most of the investors that I work with will go after that older style bungalow in the older neighborhoods you know typically built between the 1950s and the 1960s because it's their opinion that having a two-bedroom suite downstairs will net them out so much more money Okay, as okay. opposed to what a one. As a, as opposed to say buying a house in a newer neighborhood that's only ten years old and only putting that one bedroom suite downstairs. Oh, uh, okay. okay. And why would the person in the new home put only the one bedroom down? Typically, you'll find that if it's a homeowner that wants to have a a legal suite downstairs, they want to be able to control that person that's down there. They don't want a whole family. They want to help out, say, somebody who's on a fixed income like a senior citizen or a student. They're not looking at having a, a whole bunch of people in their home. They just want the extra little bit of income. The typical investor is trying now to market to that family that can't afford to go and rent a whole house. Gotcha. Okay. So if you're looking at either of these types of properties, then what sort of value increase do you get when once there's a legal suite in the house? Uh, legal suites, if you, if you look at the sales numbers, you're going to see anywhere between 15 and 20% increase in, in the value of the home that you'll get just for having an actual legal basement suite. Obviously, when an investor looks at the numbers, they actually just look at the pure cash flow and return on their investment, you know, and you're going to get anywhere between 8 to 10% on your money easily with that type of property, which obviously is a, is a lot more attractive than just a, a single family with one source of income. Right. Okay. So a $400,000 house with an unfinished basement 
you know, what would it cost to put a basement suite in there? And then are you saying it'd be worth about 450 to 480 afterwards? Yeah. So a typical basement suite is going to cost you roughly anywhere between 50 to, to 65,000, depending on the square footage. Obviously, the bigger the property, the more it's going to end up costing you, but you can't get away from the big ticket items, which are obviously kitchens and furnaces and bathrooms and stuff, which are all pretty consistent. But you could see a sales price 450 to, to 480 pretty easily in this market. And that's for a newer home, I'm assuming. The older uh, even, ones are going to be even in the older ones. There, there's there's pockets of the city where where people are getting that that four sixty five still for for that type of property. Uh, obviously, they've um, maxed out the revenue by you know renting out the garage, renting out upstairs, renting out the basement, and maximizing how much they can bring in. So, what what pockets of the city would those neighborhoods be? Anywhere, kind of. In, uh, well, it could, honestly, it could be anywhere. It's that typical 1960, 1100 square foot bungalow that you're going to be picking up for, for $300,000 and less and turning around and putting the basement suites. Those bungalows will cost you more per square foot to put a, to put a legal suite in because you're potentially going to be cutting in windows. You're going to be adding some more mechanical, having to definitely do some plumbing in the basement, which isn't cheap. So yeah. a lot of those things are extra added costs, but at the end, you know, you definitely, you know, get that out uh, on the sales side, or if not, you're renting it out and, and, and cash flowing some good numbers. Right. And I would assume the older homes would be less expensive on the purchase price side of things anyways. Right? They are. They're, they're typically between 50 and 60 grand cheaper. Okay. All right. What other trends are you seeing in the market right now? Well, the most apparent trend in the market is the amount of foreclosures that are coming on right now with the economy the way it is. I think that's something that over the next 12 months, we're going to see a dramatic rise in. I think Albertans have hung on for a long time, balancing and, you know, robbing from Peter to pay Paul. And over the next few months into the next year, I think that's, it's finally going to come to head that they just can't do it anymore. Right. So what sort of challenges and opportunities does that present to the two of you as realtors and to your potential clients? Well, for me, I see nothing but opportunity in the market, right? Because, I mean, I follow the philosophy that cheap will always sell. Okay. Right? So if a house has dropped in value, now it's more attracted to first time buyers that are, you know, having a harder time qualifying because of the benchmark, yeah. but prices come down. So now they can get into that marketplace. Okay. Right. So that, that's a huge opportunity. Um, we will see a lot of out of town investors start looking at Edmonton's market as a potential to buy their new rental properties in and do what David does, turn them into legal suites, double up their income that way. We'll see a lot of people looking from, say, the Vancouver area. I know there's realtors that are and people that will work with groups from Toronto showing that Edmonton does have the viability for a very strong rental market and it does get very good rents. So they will come in and purchase now because those prices are extremely attractive. Mm -hmm. The only people I ultimately see hurting are those typical homeowners that own a home that are in between that $500 and $800,000 price range where they really needed two strong incomes to afford that house and now they can't hold on to that anymore because somebody's had to take a pay cut over the last couple of years. Right. Okay. It's interesting. I was just before you came, I was reading a story on how bankruptcies, both business and personal bankruptcies are up in Alberta significantly. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I'm starting to see that in the marketplace too. So can you really get a good deal if you're buying a foreclosure? Well, that's, I think that's where the big misconception is, is everybody watches TVs and thinks that foreclosures in Canada work like they do in the U.S. And that's typically you get the guy who sees the house listed at 300000 and he thinks it's appropriate to come in and put in an offer at one hundred and fifty. 
The reality of the situation is back in the 90s, the banking system set it up so that banks don't take a huge hit on these homes. So when they do go into foreclosure, lots of times if they were insured mortgages, the bank was paid out and they would rather hold on to the property than sell it for a huge loss, right? It's not costing them anything. And I think that's what investors and buyers really need to be aware of. When a house goes into foreclosure, they will send out an appraiser who will tell you what market value is. And despite what the realtor says, the listing realtor to the bank or the lawyer, whoever they're dealing with, they will always err on the side of whatever the appraiser said. And if the appraiser said that house was worth $300,000, yet the realtor is saying it's worth two fifty. dollars the appraiser's numbers will be used and the bank will not accept less than that, mm-hmm. right? They know that they've got a guarantee essentially on the property. So, you know, I find if you actually want the better deal, you're smarter to work with an agent who can go and approach the people that are getting into trouble before it gets into foreclosure versus waiting for the bank to tank over because the bank has unlimited funds and they don't care. They know real estate will eventually go up in value mm-hmm. and they're willing to bet on it. Do you get, is there a difference in pricing if it's still with say the bank or if it's before the courts? Well, those are two different kinds of foreclosures altogether. In the case of the court, they will still use the appraisal numbers. But again, in the case of the court, the previous homeowner has up until the last minute that the judge accepts an offer to make a payment on that property or make payment arrangements with their bank. And then the house gets pulled off the market. So again, the bank isn't in the business of wanting to foreclose. They'd rather people make payments. So they will sidestep everything and let the homeowner stay there. Once it gets into the bank's hands after it's gone through the court process, again, now these guys have unlimited funds, so they don't care if the property sits on the market for a year, year and a half. Anything to add to that, Dave? Yeah, no, I think Jill kind of hit it on the head when people think that obviously they're going to get a deal. It's a system that, that gives the sellers every chance to redeem themselves until the last minute. So, you know, when we're attracting those types of buyers, you know, educating them on why they're looking for foreclosure is obviously very important. They just don't understand what it actually takes to, to go through and purchase one of these and the risks that are inherited. You're, you're buying something that's as is, where is absolutely zero warranties and, and you never know what you could run into. So honestly, on in this market, in the, in this demographic, uh, it's not worth it. Yeah, I don't unless it's a smoke and smoking deal that that you know you're going to be safe on. Right. So expand a little bit about the uh, lack of warranties and, and buying as is where is when it's a foreclosure. So when you're buying a property from a, a regular person, obviously there, there's warranties and representations that are made that they're warranting that the property sits where it's supposed to sit within the uh, municipal bylaws. Obviously, any other warranties in regards to permits that were done on the property. If these things aren't done and they said they were, obviously you have recourse through through the contract. When a house is sold as is where is through the courts, all those documents are, are, are struck off the contract and basically you are taking it kind of as it is, as it sits. There's no way to go back and, you know, potentially go after the seller. So it's a higher risk proposition for a buyer. It's extremely higher risk, and and to be honest, it's it's a game that most people will play when they're they're cash buyers and they they know what they're doing, or they have a, a team of people that can go in and fix them up afterwards. You know, just for the regular person to want to go in and, and buy one because they think it's a good deal. You know, there's a lot of risk, and even financing it is is not as easy as what one would think. Most of these people want to see cash and, and deposits that that are there. 
Right, okay. Now going back to the idea of the flips, you know, that townhouse example, that was an example of a quick flip. I could see where, you know, either a foreclosure or buying a property and, and then putting in the basement suite, that could be a much longer flip, maybe a couple of years long if you decide to put renters in there while you're waiting for the market to recover. Do you see a lot of people doing the sort of the long flip? I don't think anybody does a long flip by choice. Obviously, it, it's market dependent based on, you know, how things are going. And, and if it's, you know, are there investors out there that want to buy it or is there somebody that's looking to to buy that property to live in. I truly believe that there is opportunities in, in this market to buy a property like that as a homeowner and live, you know, on the main floor and rent out that basement and basically cut your, your payments in half. You know, say you've got a $1,700 mortgage payment on that property. You know, you're bringing in a thousand dollars a month in the basement. You know, you're down to $700 for your, for your mortgage. You know, that's a, that's a big help for a lot of young families that are just getting started. And, and it's funny because you think about how many unfinished basements are out there and people don't use them. They're just, you know, a thousand square feet or 800 square feet of empty space that you're heating yeah. and it might be storing five or six boxes, but yet people still feel that they need to have their basement, which is shocking because they're never down there. So why not turn into something that's going to generate cash and increase the value of your home, you know, 15, 20% if you want to turn around and sell it. It's honestly a no-brainer if for a young couple there or a single person that's getting into the market, you know, instead of just spending three fifty, you know, buy it for four forty and put somebody in the basement, and you know, your payments are going to be a heck of a lot less, and your equity in your property is hopefully going to be more when you turn around and sell it. Jill, you have anything to add? I do. Where I deal mostly with buyers, regular buyers, not so much investors. There's the struggle that I think a lot of the first time or early homeowners have is they still have the influence of their parents and the parents are still of the mindset that you never buy a home that's attached to anybody else's. All houses should have big yards. You should be able to buy a big house because when they bought houses, that's the way it is. And we've seen over especially the last 10 years is housing has become unaffordable for the, the first time or second time homeowners. And with the influence of their families, they're missing the opportunity to take advantage of paying down that mortgage, like David says, by going in there, putting the renter downstairs. And yeah, you do it on your first house and it may be only five or seven years, but generating $1,000 a month for seven years and paying towards your mortgage, not only gives you the, the ability to have a bigger down payment on your real forever home, but it also gives you a lot of security in a market like this where we're uncertain about what are our wages going to stay at? You know, are we going to have a job in six months from now? This means that at least one person can be unemployed now and you can still keep your home. Mm -hmm. So I've been encouraging my buyers to really look at it as it is an opportunity, right? If they're uncertain or they're worried about $100 a month, this is a great way to give themselves the buffer that they actually need and get the equity back in their home. Mm-hmm. Okay. Are you getting the sense from the people that you're working with that they're somewhat cautious and, or, or maybe even fearful? Because it would seem to me, why go shopping for a house if, if you're not at all confident? Well, there's, there's a couple different buyers out there right now. And I'm going to try to, even though it's not age appropriate, it's kind of following the generational gap. I'm finding that my first time buyers, my 20 to 30 year olds, they're coming in very smart now. 
Mm-hmm. They're looking at it and they may say, okay, well, Jason approved me for $400,000, but realistically, we know we can get seven of our 10 I wants for three twenty-five to three fifty. dollars So we're going to stop there mm-hmm. and we're going to bank that extra little bit of money or do accelerated payments on our house. Then I get into the 30 to 45. The 30 to 45 they're not as cautious with money. They're willing to go into debt and they're really willing to use overtime and, and push their payments as much as they can. And it's almost as though they're trying to keep up with the Joneses. They want that 2,400 square foot house. They want the double attached garage. They want the bigger yard. And it's them that I find run into the problems the fastest. And then you get into the 45 plus and, and they'll balance it out. Some of them will take the risk. But the majority of them have owned a home long enough that they know the risks of having, you know, that extra $300 a month that maybe they can't afford or what's going to happen if they're unemployed. So I think, you know, there's a generation coming in that's becoming a very, very smart home buyer. There's a generation we need to work with a little bit. And then there's the ones that typically will have the 20% down and they're smart enough to know what they're doing. Yeah. No, I would agree with you that today's first time home buyers, the quote unquote millennials, they are very much more practical for lack of a better word on what their house prices are. I've noticed it in terms of just the amount that they're borrowing and they are not going to the wall at all in terms of you know, price versus what they qualify for. Well, and I think that comes from the market crash of 2008, right? Is the the first or the second age group, that 30 to 45, they were coming into the market in the late 1990s, early 2000s, and real estate had done nothing but gone up in value until 2008 when they saw that crash, right? So, you know, there was there's a whole group of people that think you buy a house, you sell it three years later, you're going to make money on it based on what happened from 2000 to 2008. But that's not the case anymore. This has gone back to pre-2000 where you can own a home for 10 years and you may only actually see a 2 to 3% value increase over that 10-year period. However, now you're actually just doing it based off the equity of your home, mm-hmm. right? So I think that's where the difference is, is that millennial has seen some bumpy waters, whereas the generation before that only saw profitability and why not take the risk? Because there was a lot of reward back then. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, looking into your crystal ball, where do you think you see the market going over the next, you know, three to five years? You want this one? <laughs> well, honestly, in the next three to five years, we're going to be exactly where we are right now. Honestly, I don't see any real change in the market. We, we've built way too many homes on the new home side. That stuff is is definitely keeping the resale lower which isn't helping anything and those guys aren't going to stop doing what they're doing because they got to feed their their machine and their corporations to to stay afloat so they'll keep building you know as far as the resale side of it you know again what is the demand where are the people going to come from that are going to drive the 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 prices up you know what we saw in 2006 2007 it's you know it's far far from that you know we're just going to see some modest to, to flat growth in the next three to five years, I think. Right. Which there's nothing wrong with being flat or modest. Not it's at safe. All. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's kind of like a Goldilocks situation, yep. right? Exactly. So, you know, and if you honest, if you look at, you know, I think people that bought five years ago and that are renewing right now, and you probably see that Jason on the renewal side is, you know, people might be panicking a little bit and, and not sure where things are at because obviously their life might've changed or their job might not be what it was. And, you know, so obviously they're trying to figure, figure out what to do. So I think we will see people, you know, making changes in their lifestyle, either, you know, downsizing their house or, um, you know, trying to find a way to, 
to generate cash from it. So either it's a basement suite or it's renting out the garage or it's doing something. I don't think that's going to be very uncommon. Mm-hmm. And I see, you know, looking more short term, this is the question I'll get asked is, well, maybe I'll just sit there and I'll wait to spring to sell my house hoping that the property value has gone up. Realistically, I can tell a homeowner when I go into their home right now is if they bought it in between the years of 2010 and 2013, their house isn't worth a penny more than what they paid for it back then. And I don't care that you put on a new roof or that you upgraded your furnace and things like that. Those are just, those are things you do to keep your home in good shape. They're not improvements, right? They're just the basic mechanics that you have to keep up with. So when I'm coming into these homes and they're saying, well, you know, we bought back in 2010, we paid $350,000 for the house. And you're coming in today and saying, you know, the market's only really realistically 340 to 345. The question I get is, well, I don't want to lose money. That's the first thing they'll say. And then, oh, well, maybe I should wait till next year to sell. The reality is, is your house, even if housing prices improve, we're going to see maybe 1% to 2%, right? That's about $3,500 on a $350,000 house. How much do you need your house to go up to feel you're not losing? You know, and I spend a lot of time counseling people that you've been paying into this now for five to seven, eight years. You've got your equity on your side. The house values may have changed, but you still paid that mortgage down. So you haven't actually lost anything because you would have had to pay to live somewhere. Right. And presumably you're buying another home and that home has been flat or maybe gone down. Exactly. So you're selling for less, you're buying for less, right? And, you know, in 2007, it was you're selling for high. Well, guess what? You're buying high too. So, you know, it really boils down to what are the needs and the wants of your family, not what the market itself is doing. If you've outgrown your house and you can't stay in it any longer, you need to go and buy a house that's bigger. If you've lost a job, you're going to need to downsize or maybe your kids have gone to school and you need to downsize. You're not selling for less. You're buying flat. The ruler that is going to shift in either direction, whether it's an up market or a down market. Right. Okay. What's the best real estate advice either of you have ever received? Sit down with an agent from day one, have them counsel you, learn about the market, pick one person to help you. Don't go and call off all the signs because the reality is, is when you come and sit down with me in the office, my job is to protect you and to get you what you need. When you call me off a sign and I've never met you before, my job is to sell that house, whether it fits your needs or not. And I think in a market that's as dynamic as this is, where there are so many variables coming into play and there's so many things to think about how it could impact the next year to two, you really need to sit there and take the advice of the person that's sitting across the table from you. You need to trust them. They do have a fiduciary duty to you. That's my two cents. Mine, honestly, is is definitely education, but it's also jumping in and, and actually doing it. People that, that talk about it and, and never, ever actually do anything about it are the ones that say, oh, I should have. But real estate is the best thing that you can buy. Do you need patience? Yes. There's lots of things that can go wrong. But even as a, as a first-time buyer, if you're buying your first property, I'll never forget you know, the first house that I bought. It was the scariest, scariest moment of my life, handing over the deposit check and not sure what to, what to expect. But at the end of the day, you've got to put a roof over your head and uh, you might as well be paying for it and, and hopefully making some money on it down the road. It's just something that will set you up long-term 
So my biggest advice is, is just to do it, but get educated enough to know where you're, where you're going. What trends have you seen in the last, say, five to 10 transactions? I mean, I, I'm still dealing with that, you know, that first, second, third time buyer. I, my business focuses on homeowners. Again, like I'm not huge into the investment side of things. So my trends aren't changing. Families still need a safe, healthy house to live in. They want to live in a good neighborhood. You know, they're still putting value on for some of them. It's how big the yard is. For some of them, it's how new the house is. For some of them, it's the lifestyle choice of, say, going over into a condo. So I haven't seen any trend changes in my particular business. On the flip side, if I had to say there's something, I do see it on the investment side. There is a difference right now. Oh, yeah? Yes. What, what is it? I think the investors are, you know, they're definitely cautious a little bit in regards to what they're buying. You know, obviously the tenant profile is, is a big deal right now. Personally, we're dealing with some, some tenant issues on our end of things. And, you know, it's definitely not a fun part of being a, being an investor. So I think, you know, definitely the, the, the investors are, are making sure and being a bit more cautious, but they're still out there trying to find the right property. You know, the funny thing about that property that an investor is buying, you're competing with first time buyers because those are the ones that are that make sense, the cash flow. So people always say, well, is it going to get lower? Is it going to get lower? Well, no, because investors will just keep buying them up at that price point and they're going to, you know, it's not going to keep dropping. So if you're a first time buyer, you know, you're actually competing with a lot of people out there that are, are wanting that same house for many different reasons. So, you know, overall, I think the market is definitely at a good spot for that. But again, you know, it's, it's picking the right properties and obviously as an investor, picking the right tenant profile. Are there any parts of the city that you're seeing more activity in than others? Well, that's a loaded question too. There's certain neighborhoods that will always do well and on the higher end of things, right? Is there's investors and builders that are going after the older neighborhoods. Take it, for example, Glenora, Crestwood, Bonnie Dune. All they're wanting to do is find those little old war houses, tear them down and put up the new skinny. So from that perspective, if you live in those areas, yeah, we have no problem selling your house, right? I still see a lot of buyers that are looking towards the trend of brand new homes, right? You know, there's, there's incentives that are given by builders to come in and buy those new houses. Our, our millennials don't have the skills anymore to repair properties. You know, they don't know how to fix things up. So they're looking for that. What's the easiest thing for me to buy that I'm not going to put money in in that first five years? So you'll see a lot of um, buyers coming into, say, the new neighborhoods down in the West End. Depending on demographics, Southeast is doing extremely well. Southwest is everybody wants to live there, but nobody can afford it, <laughs> right? And I'm starting to see a lot of new builds um, going to a lot of younger buyers up on the Northeast side. Okay. Right. Because, again, the price point is still attractive enough that they can get into a newer home for under three fifty. Right. And that seems to be the magic number is three fifty and under. You can attract that person. Right. Anything under three hundred is OK. Now the buyer is seriously taking consideration into townhomes and duplexes. The smart buyers are looking at, OK, well, if I got to go and get a half duplex, well, I want one with the side entrance on it then in case I do need to put a basement suite down the road. So I think overall that buyer is still going to go where they need to go. And then when you get into the second and third time, it becomes what's closest for my kids. You know, what school do I want them in? What hockey rink are they going to? Are they going to play soccer over here? And that buyer is going to focus on the amenities of the neighborhood and not even the price point. Right. 
So let's say you have a family member in another city who is looking to either buy or sell a home. You can't represent them because let's say they're in a different province. What advice would you give them in terms of how to figure out who to use as a realtor? Well, that's it depends on which agent that you have your trust with, too. I mean, many of the companies, including Remax, of course, I mean, I go to conference every year so that I can meet other professionals that come from across the country or come internationally so that I have the ability to say to my clients, oh, well, you're moving out to Ottawa. Well, I've got a list of three or four people that I know could be the right fit for you. So let me contact them and set up interviews for you. Right. I think you should always talk to your professional first. Right. The person that you trust to see if they have the ability or know somebody in that area that will treat them the way that you've been treated. That's actually a pretty interesting question when it comes to uh, to finding the right agent. And obviously, there's always thousands of them out there and, and not all of them are, are full time agents and not that part time agents are bad. But honestly, it's, it's somebody that that has a pulse on the market. But at the end of the day, these people are negotiating for you to get the best price or to sell your house for the most money. You need to have somebody that knows how to deal with people, how to deal with a contract. And what we're seeing in today's market with some of these agents may not be the best professionalism that, that's out there. And again, it's the sign of the times. You know, things are tight. They want to get deals done quickly. So you need to find somebody that's willing to take the time to, to do everything they say they're going to do and obviously be professional at doing it. I think part of it is too, especially with the changes and the challenges that our market is um, bringing on to us. So you have to ask yourself, how long has the agent been in the business? Have they ever actually dealt with a bad market before, right? There's two types of agents. There's the agent that will run around and say, oh, well, you want to put in a bid $100,000 on a $300,000 house because you said so, I'm going to write that on the contract. That agent isn't doing you any favors at all. All that agent is doing is they're so desperate to make the money, they're afraid to tell you no. But the reality of the situation is, is when we're negotiating deals, there's got to be something attractive out there to make that seller want to sell to you for less money. And if your agent hasn't got the skills to problem solve, right, and I don't find that, you know, agents that have come in since, I will say, 2007, because the market's been really, really good up until then, I don't find that they have the same problem solving skills that we had prior to that market. Right. So I think it's really important that you take the time to if you're coming from out of town, talk to the person that you trust that handled you well, and they should have the knowledge to deal with somebody in this market. Right. That knows the market or they wouldn't be referring you in the first place. The last place I would go and look for an agent is on the Internet. Why is that? Because the Internet is nothing. You buy yourself to position number one on Google searches if that's what you really want to do. Right. There's lots of agents out there that sell barely any homes, but they will dump a huge amount of money into websites and SEO so that their name pops up first. There's a lot of agents that will put, you know, bus benches are a great example. We drive around and we think, oh, well, they got a bus bench. They must be successful. That's not the case at all. You really need to take the time to ask the right questions of the agent that's coming in the door. And that should be no different, even if you're referring to another city. Okay. Any other last thoughts or comments before we wrap things up? Um, yeah, no, I think, you know, it's funny. People always ask what time is the best time to buy. And there's never really a right answer. But obviously going into this, you know, December, January, February, when it's cold and, and people are... Uh, 
been on the market for close to a year trying to sell their home, you definitely find some eager sellers. So, you know, if you're looking to buy right now is definitely the time to be looking and hopefully take advantage of, of just the, the season. And my advice to any buyer or seller out there would be don't hire the yes man. Don't hire the person that will do whatever you tell them to do without question, right? They're supposed to be representing you and they're supposed to be negotiating for your best interest. And a yes man's not going to do that. Sometimes we need to hear that the decisions that were or the paths that we're trying to take are wrong. And you need somebody behind that closed door saying to you that that might not be the best strategy and here's what I think will help you get that home for the price you want. It may not be exactly what you want to hear right off the get-go, but if they can tell you the truth, they'll be willing to go out there and fight for your wants, your needs, when they get out there with the other agent. Perfect. Jill, David, thank you very much. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Jason. It's been great.